0: Join me at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, as you're turning there, I heard about this preacher who was driving up on a mountain road, and as he was driving, another car came by and ran him off the road over a cliff, and somehow he was able to expel himself from the car and grab onto a root on the side of the cliff on which he was about to fall. And he began to cry out, help, is there anybody there to help me? And someone said, let go. He said, who are you? And the voice replied, God, trust me and let go. He said, who are you again? He said, God. He said, is there anyone else up there? (laughs) I don't know if it surprises you or not that a preacher might struggle to trust God, but in Matthew chapter 11, we've got a preacher that's struggling. And there will come a point in time in your life, if it hasn't come already, when God will act in such a way or not act in such a way that He will not meet your expectations. In fact, there may be a point in time where you will be tempted to stumble over how God works in your life. And that's what John the Baptist is facing here in Matthew chapter 11. It could be that your bank account could be down, but your blood pressure up. It may be in your marriage that moonlight and roses has turned to daylight and dishes. It could be that someday you wish that you were a different species of animal so you could eat your children. (laughs) I don't mean to inspire any thoughts along those lines, but... We know the feeling. It could be that when your trouble comes in, your friends go out. Even John the Baptist struggled with this. And if John the Baptist struggled with this, it's very likely that at some point you will as well. You probably will if you're not doing so right now. If you're not properly motivated with your interest in Christ and His church, you'll probably stumble. There are several different motivations that cause people to be interested in Christ and His church. One is the controller. This person wants ritual and tradition and tightly controls that and oftentimes is more familiar with human rituals and human traditions than they are God and the Word. And they expect staff and they expect leaders to guard the tradition and ritual. They've got more of a relationship with ritual and tradition than they do Jesus. And then there's the contortionist. This person will list a number of extra-biblical rules to follow. Now, it's good to be wise, but some people can get so tightly wound that they can't smile. Then there's the clubber. This person wants connections and community in the church and really never manifests a zeal or interest in the person of Jesus Himself, willing to walk with the community, but not not very impressive in a walk with God. Uh, they, They want connections with others. Then there is the consumer. I skipped that, but this person expects the church and especially staff and leadership to provide religious services and religious products for children and for themselves. And if the church all of a sudden doesn't meet their need, they'll go shop for another church. I've actually had people tell me, we're shopping churches. And I said, we'll disappoint you. Because we only have three consumers around this place, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there's the Christian motivation. Jesus is worthy no matter what goes on in my life. And that is what we're going to look at today. John is in prison because he's preached like thunder. He swallowed thunder and he preached lightning against Herod because Herod had taken up with a woman, not his wife. Well, he actually stole his brother's wife and married her and took up with her. And John preached publicly against this nasty, awful sinfulness in Herod's life and instead of repenting and seeking grace well he did what a lot of people do today he attacked the messenger and put him into prison and a few chapters later he killed him he killed him and John is here in this prison probably anticipating his death and Jesus said God blesses the one who does not stumble over how he works in his life Matthew 11 verse number 2 When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Vance Havner says, This is Jesus' forgotten beatitude. We know, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn and on. This is a beatitude that gets short shrift in the kingdom. It's what, uh, again, Vance Havner called the forgotten beatitude. Again, And blessed is he who is not offended, Blessed is he who's not scandalized, is the actual Greek word. We get our word scandalized from it. It's scandalon. Blessed is he who does not stumble because of, not the world, the flesh or the devil. Blessed is he who does not stumble because of how I work, because of me. And so this morning I want to address the subject, Jesus' forgotten beatitude. And would like to make the point, God blesses those who are not offended or stumbling, but are satisfied to let Jesus be Jesus. And there are several areas we need to observe that in this morning. One, God blesses those who are satisfied with Jesus. And may I use the E word? God blesses those who are satisfied with Jesus' evangelism. Now, what in the world would Jesus' evangelism could ever offend anybody? Oh, my goodness, you find it here in the text. Uh, Jesus has just talked and commissioned His disciples in the previous chapter to a very difficult ministry of evangelism. And look what He does in chapter 11, verse 1. He has the classroom instruction in chapter 10, and then He has the practicum in verse 1. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding His twelve disciples that He departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So Jesus ends up implementing what he had taught. He preached the gospel. He declared it. He announced it like a news reporter. And this may have set off John's questions. Jesus, here I am, lingering away in prison. I am anxious, and I am tore up over the prospect of losing my head. And what do you do? You go out and you start preaching and telling everyone how to be saved. I mean, you can't preach or teach at all without telling people how to be saved. And and you can't get before the disciples without telling them how to be saved. You're always using the E-word, Jesus, and you're always practicing it. Excuse me, but I've got a civil rights need here. And I've got a humanitarian need here. I've got a social and legal need here. And that's all you can do is preach the gospel? Yep. That's what he did. He preached the word. Jesus got at the heart of the problem. Let me say to you, you can do all the social action, the humanitarian service, uh, you, you can do all the protesting you want, but ain't nothing gonna change till Jesus is king of the heart. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. The best we can do with our measures is restrain evil, but to transform it and make it look like Jesus, we've got to share the gospel and that's what Jesus does here. Now why should I be satisfied with Jesus' command and practice of evangelism? Well there are several reasons. One, it displays God's grace. I mean, to a wicked world that would lock up John the Baptist, Jesus offers the gospel of grace. That is the response of Jesus to the wickedness of the world. So instead of bringing immediately fire and judgment and separating the chaff from the wheat as John had preached back in chapter 3, Jesus ends up bringing the good news of The gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, God is very well aware in our world that this is a wicked, heartbreaking, disappointing place. And yet, in this day, we are still on this side of the second coming of Christ, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, because God wants the gospel offered to the world. He wants to save. He would rather save and express mercy than judge right now. We've got to be satisfied with that. And then another reason, it defeats evil. Anytime someone receives Christ as Savior, the devil loses the power of death over their lives, according to Hebrews 2. Then it meets the greatest need. You can take care of all the physical and social problems of the world, but one day people die, and we are dead a lot longer than we live. We live on the other side of the grave far more than we live on this side of the grave. And the greatest need then is to receive Christ as Savior. And we'll give you that opportunity at the end of the message. Then it, uh, another reason it's so important we should be satisfied is that someone told you. If you've received Christ as Savior, someone came and was gracious enough to tell you of the good news of the gospel. And then it's joyful. It produces joy in you. It produces joy in the person that receives the Lord. It produces joy in heaven. Jesus, in fact, would say in one of three ways in Luke 15, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than, and here's a comparison, over 99 just persons who need no repentance. The most joyous thing to God the Father is when someone repents and embraces Jesus Christ. The most joyful thing for him. Hey, it's like it's like being in a hospital. And this whole world is like a hospital. It is. And that's what we run into throughout our world. And we're on the medical staff to bring healing it is, is where we are. We've got to triage the needs. And the greatest need is to receive Christ as Savior. But you know the happiest place in this hospital? It's the nursery where you find the new babies. And when someone comes to Christ, he or she becomes a new babe in Christ, according to 1 Peter 2 and John 3. And that's the happiest place in the world. You want to get a place excited and thrilled and cranked up for the name of Christ? You start bringing people to Jesus and you can't help it. So God blesses those who are satisfied with Jesus' evangelism. And so that's why our Invite Your One campaign is so urgent and so important. And we'll say more about that next Sunday. So God blesses those satisfied with Jesus' evangelism, but not only his evangelism, but his ways. His ways. Now John here questions Jesus and how he's operating his kingdom and the timing of everything, and Jesus takes him to school. And this passage from verses 2 through 15 is divided into three sections. There's one, there's agitation. John is agitated with how Jesus is operating things. And he could be agitated over the same thing that has three different angles to it. One is theology. The Old Testament said that the Messiah who would come, Jesus, would be a suffering servant and a warrior king. Well, Jesus is obviously doing the suffering servant ministry by healing and raising the dead and preaching the gospel. But where's the warfare? Well... There really is warfare here, but just not in its full manifestation. Jesus goes to war against the curse and against the work of the devil. He raises the dead. That's warfare against death. He heals the sick. That's warfare against sickness and disease. The only warfare he is withholding at this time is the judgment of sinners. That's it. Well, John's a bit confused about the theology here. He has a theological problem, and then he's got a philosophical problem. Uh, again, he's got a philosophy of ministry problem. Jesus emphasizes and puts forward the evangelistic mission, the preaching and the sharing of the Word. Well, John wanted him to follow his philosophy of ministry, and that is, you're to implement judgment. But then there's a personal difficulty here, and that is, John is in prison, and it looks like all Jesus can do is tell people get saved. So there's some agitation. But verses 4 through 6, Jesus engages in some assurance. Now, verses 4 through 6, very clear. Jesus said, The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. These are all signs that the kingdom is coming from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. And so Jesus is fulfilling these. It's very, very clear that in His first coming, Jesus could have brought His second coming. But had He done that, The whole world would be in a miserable disaster. Instead, what Jesus does is that he offers miniatures of the future coming kingdom. He offers harbingers. He offers um, previews. Much like movies have a preview that advertise their coming. Jesus is a preview of the coming kingdom. And so when he cast out demons, that points us to the future when he will completely cast out Satan from the world. And then when He heals the sick, that that is a preview of the future complete, thorough healing of all the earth and the cosmos. When He brings peace, that's the peace that will take place between the human and the animal kingdom. So in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry is a miniature of all that will come in the kingdom in the future. And the only thing He's withholding at this point is intense judgment of the wicked. Now let me ask you. If Jesus had brought judgment of the wicked at 11 o'clock that day, where would everyone in the world be at midnight? Well, the whole non-Jewish world would be under the judgment of God. And most of the Jewish world. Well, why is it then that God doesn't bring the full cleansing and the full kingdom now? 2 Peter 3.9 He's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And so this Arab between the first and second coming of uh, Jesus Christ, is an era of mercy. An era where we tell the world of Jesus and His love. And the great witness to the mercy of God is not only the cross of Christ, the great witness to the mercy of God is the ministry and the message and the mission of the church. Because we're on mission, that is a witness that God is gracious. He's trying to save now before the day of judgment. And so this is the assurance that Jesus brings. And then, it's it's a remarkable thing what follows this. There's agitation and assurance, but then there's also applause. Uh, Jesus says several things about John. Verses 8 and 9, he's a strong man. He asks these folks, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. Jesus says, this man is a strong man, even in his doubt. And then he says he's a prophetic man. Verse 9, But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. He quotes Malachi 3.1 to say, John is that man. And then he goes on and says he's a superior man. Verse 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least, and let me paraphrase here, he who is least in the future kingdom of heaven is greater than he was on the earth. And so John is a superior man. And then, verse 10, uh, translators stumble over this terribly, but I'll clarify it. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Uh, John is fruitful. Now, this casts these terms in a negative light. There's a parallel in Luke 16, 16 that put them in a positive light. And let me paraphrase this text by reading it as follows. Since John showed up in ministry, fervent people have been taking the kingdom with zeal. Eager souls are storming it. And so he's praising John the Baptist's ministry In a positive way, not a negative way, but a positive way for bringing storms of fervent, enthusiastic people into the kingdom. So he's praising John even in his uh, doubt. And then he's a promised man, verses 13 through 15. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John, verse 13 says. And verse 14, and if you're willing to receive it, He is Elijah, not the Elijah of the Old Testament, but he is Elijah who is to come, who went through his own doubts, by the way. And then he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So John is doubting and struggling theologically, philosophically, and personally, and Jesus pours on the compliments and the applause. When John was at his poorest, Jesus was at his richest with praise for John. When John was at his worst, Jesus was at his best and he is with you when you sincerely struggle. The point I want to make here is this. Our ways are not Christ's ways often times. There will come a point in time where God will shock and probably surprise you. If that day has not come, it's probably soon on the way. And you've got to be prepared for God to do whatever He wants to do to the shock and consternation of His people. I mean, it reminds me of Job. And you recall everything Job went through. I mean, Job lost his children, he lost his fortune, and he lost his health. And from Job chapter 3 to Job chapter 37, he and his friends ask many times of God 241 questions. Questions. They bombard heaven, especially Job, with questions. Beginning in chapter 38 to 42, God responds. And do you know something? God doesn't answer a single question. And oftentimes he doesn't. Do you know what God does in those five chapters? He responds to 241 questions with 68 questions of his own that are calculated to put Job and his friends in their place. You don't question God. Trust Him. Oh, if you do, He's not going to fall to pieces. Don't misunderstand me. But God is worthy of trust even when we do not understand Him. And that's what we have here. So, we've got to understand. God is not, Christ is not the President of the United States who is accountable to the voters. Because He is not elected to office by the voters. Now the President of the United States is. But Jesus is higher than that. Jesus is King, accountable to no one. And He doesn't have to be. And so we are not entitled to an easy life. We are not entitled to even answers. He does not feel obligated to answer. We will get what we need and what we can handle. And if you don't have answers to your questions, either you don't need an answer to your question or you can't handle it right yet. Proverbs 3, 5 then makes it very clear. Trust in the Lord with all your heart And lean not on your own understanding. Don't even do it. Be entirely flexible with God. One commentator said, We've got to have a heavenly carelessness with God. Just allow God and expect God not to react according to your assumptions. But let God respond as God. You want a blessing? Accept Christ's freedom to act as He wants and accept His priority of evangelism. But there's a third thing. God blesses those satisfied with Jesus' judgments. Now, how in the world can anyone ever be offended at Jesus' judgment? Oh, we know how, but um, truth is, we really shouldn't be. I mean, who wants a God that doesn't have any moral standards and the ability to enforce them? The fact that God judges overthrows completely whole evolutionary philosophy. The idea in evolution is is that we're on our way upward, and we're increasingly uh, developing and improving all the time. Well, judgment says the exact opposite. We're worthy of judgment. We're not on the way up morally. We're not more sophisticated than previous generations. In fact, this one's about the most barbaric. The last 100 years or so have saw more death and destruction. from man's sophistication than any barbarians before us. God does not treat all people equally. He treats believers one way and the wicked another. And we cannot take this egalitarianism and impose it upon God. So let me just twist the lion's tail for just a moment here. With chapter 11, verses 16 to 23. Jesus responds to the crowd and he says first, you're impossible. Look at verse 16 to 19. But what, to what shall I like in this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, well, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. In other words, John and Jesus would not cooperate with the crowd. They would not be led by the crowd. They were led by God. And the crowd is upset that they don't get mastery over Jesus and John for John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon he's an ascetic he is separated from the world Jesus is a bit more social the son of man came eating and drinking and they say look a glutton and a winebibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners and you just can't please this crowd they're impossible and when people are intent on mastering everything in life and their own experience they'll do the same but Jesus also said this is an indicted crowd Verse 20, he began to rebuke the cities that saw his mighty works. He said in verse 21, Woe woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, from which Jezebel came, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, his headquarters, by the way, will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, the worst possible comparison, it would have remained to this day. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus is saying here, the more truth you get, the more you're responsible. Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin, had more exposure to Christ than Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. Therefore, they were more responsible and their judgment would be more intense before God on the other side of the grave. And so the more knowledge we have, the more we are responsible before God. It's very clear here that Jesus is the original hellfire brimstone preacher. Now that would shock some people, but it doesn't shock me. When I look at God's holiness, and I see my own sinfulness, what surprises me is not that God would send anyone to hell, but that he would let anyone into heaven. That's really what surprises me. And these are words that are falling not from the mouth of an overzealous evangelist, not from someone that is mentally imbalanced and is uh, sadistic or masochistic and simply wants to manipulate crowds into responding. These words are falling from the lips of the one who's the best teacher ever known, the sweetest and kindest of all. We've got to be satisfied with him. Well, preacher, how do you think this makes other people feel? Well, I hope right uncomfortable, to be honest with you. It's real. It comes from Christ, and Jesus does not organize His kingdom around our feelings. He organizes it around His mission in the world. So we've got to be careful of our feelings. I'd say to you, never let feelings govern your walk with God. They are great servants, but they're terrible masters. In fact, you'd be better full of tacos than you would too much emotion and too much feeling. James Dobson years ago wrote a book entitled, Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And he said he spent 200 pages on that question to give one answer. No. No. Proverbs 28, 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. If you want a blessing, accept the God of justice. But then there's a fourth thing. God blesses those satisfied with Jesus' knowledge. Now Jesus pivots from judgment marvelous wonderful grace in verses 25 through 30 where sin abounds grace abounds more and and look what we have here jesus begins to talk about god's gracious knowledge and how he distributes it he says first of all it is selective verse 25 at that time jesus answered and said i thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes Those who have the desperation of a hungry infant will get the knowledge of God. Those who are wise in their own eyes, satisfied with their own knowledge, cannot be taught, cannot be spoken to by any preacher or any spouse or any child or any godly stranger will have these things hidden. So there is, right today, even in this assembly, there is a spiritual activity taking place with Almighty God. To some, here today, God sees an infantile humility and a desperation, and He's unveiling His Son. To others who are satisfied, who are offended by Jesus, who are closed off to the truth, He's actually actively hiding these things and taking away what they already possess. That kind of activity is taking place in this worship center today. And every time we gather for a Bible study or every time we gather personally before the Word of God, every time we hear a preacher preach or read a Christian book or listen to Christian radio or watch biblically-based Christian television, God is revealing or God is hiding Himself. And it all depends upon the person's soul. If the person thinks he or she is wise and prudent, they get nothing. If they won't change, they get nothing. And what they have is taken away, Jesus will say. But then, if the person has an infantile, small child humility and is is hungry for him, God says they'll get it. He is selective. In other words, desperation always precedes revelation from God. If the last new thing I learned, if the last eruption in my heart For the things of God and His Word happened years ago. There's an enormous need for a change now and today. Every day with Jesus should be sweeter than the day before. And every day I know Him, I should love Him more and more. That's a great way to approach life and use as self-evaluation. So it is selective. God won't speak till He's got our attention. But it's also good. Jesus will go on to say in verse 26, Even so, Father... For so it seemed good in your sight. It is morally upright to hide from the wise, the so-called wise, and to reveal himself to those who are desperate before him. Then it's Christ-centered. Verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus is willing to reveal the Father to those who are willing to embrace this truth so it is not enough to merely accept God and talk of God God wants us to exalt Jesus and there is no genuine knowledge of God apart from Jesus Christ and then it's attractive look at verse 28 through 30 come to me all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest none of the world religion leaders have ever let such words pour from their lips They never made these promises because they can't keep them. Jesus does because he can. All who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Now take my yoke upon you. You're going to pull some weight here, and you're on one side of the yoke, and I'm on the other. I'm going to do the majority of the pulling. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, do you you want to know Christ and His Father? You've got to have the humility necessary to access the knowledge of God. You don't necessarily have to be degreed with an impressive education. You do not necessarily have to be uh, especially intelligent with a high IQ. To have the knowledge of God, you've got to be humble before God. Yielded before Him. Willing to implement anything God says because He said it. And because He's directed you. If you've got that kind of humility, you'll have the following things. You'll be desperate. You'll admit. And are you willing to admit, Lord, I'm weary. I'm laboring. I'm heavy laden. I have this burden of guilt because of my sins. Or I've been trying to exercise life on my own. I don't have what it takes. I'm like John the Baptist. I'm in this prison maybe of my own making, and I don't understand. If you're desperate before God, you have hope. Are are you dependent? Are you dependent? Are you willing to be as dependent upon Christ as babies are their parents? You're not trying to come before God with your own virtue and righteousness. You're not that naive. You don't exaggerate your goodness that way. Instead, you come before God saying, my only hope is the cross and the resurrection. I'm that dependent. And then, will you defer to Him? Will you take his yoke and put yourself in the place of a beast of burden with a master over you who directs your steps? Are you willing in your heart to yield that way to Jesus Christ? If you are humble, and it takes takes this shape that you're dependent, that you're desperate, and you will defer to him, you can know God. You can know Christ. And so to know him, you've got to change your mind and see him as Jesus did. Bob Moeller sent me a link this week of a story about a man who purchased a $4 vase at the Goodwill. And he began to suspect that there was uh, something special about it, so he had uh, it uh, evaluated and uh, took it to someone who knew about such things and found out the vase was a 17th century vase worth $50,000. Do you know how often people come to Jesus And find that is the case. They look at Jesus as merely insignificant, irrelevant. But then they turn to Him and they find in Him the pearl of great price. Someone worth far more than you could ever imagine. It begins with humility and desperation and deference and dependence upon Jesus Christ. He will take you if you'll come. Some of you need to come for the first time. You need to say yes to Him. You need to bow your heart. The Holy Spirit's dealing with you. You know things aren't right, but it's time to come. It's time to come to Jesus. Staff will help you this morning. Some of you need to come and become part of this church. God's moving you, directing you. It's the wise thing to do, or He's leading you to do that. Some of you need to come with some burdens. We want to help you with those. And in just a moment, our staff will be standing here in the front to receive you as you come. Would you quickly stand with me? And I want to pray with you, and we want to help you come. Father, I bless your name forever and forever. You've revealed these things to babes and you've hidden to those whose spirit is not right with you and have no interest. And this was good in your sight. But to babes, you're willing to say, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden and you'll find rest for your souls. Thank you, O God. The only qualification is that we've got to know that we're broken. And O God, when we're broken and we admit it, We've got all the attention of heaven and all the resources of grace at our disposal. And Heavenly Father, there are friends here today that really, really need you. They've done some things that embarrass them and they're horrified at. Some spouse has broke their heart. Some child has disappointed them. Some circumstances in life have shaken them. Help them to come to you on your terms with your knowledge and to say yes to you. We bless you for hearing us now. In Jesus' name we pray.